A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You are listening to Tech Time with Summer's F1, presented by Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Hi, I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and we have none other than that story denizen of the tech deep, Matthew Summerfield, a.k.a. Summers F1, technical editor at Motorsport.com, who has surfaced long enough to spout some F1 wisdom our way. But before we get started, I have to remind you that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before our Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Welcome aboard, and as always, thanks for taking the time to join us. No problem, Matt. You have pulled me away from the Masters coverage, but, you know, Formula One does take precedence. Yeah, okay. I know I owe you more than a few pints for that one, then. Most definitely. It's only the first round, though, so we're okay. Right. Well, we're we're in great luck here. We have a whole show to play with, which isn't always the case. And so rather than start with a discussion of what the teams have been up to specifically— I want to ask you a little bit uh, about a more general topic, and this comes from sort of reading your articles, but where are the teams aiming for low-hanging fruit in this regulation set? I mean, is it the front wing in plates? Is it the beam wing? Where are they looking to make the most gains for the least amount of time and testing investment? I think that's really a question that you have to ask from an individual team point of view, because each of them are in a very different area in terms of where they are in the development cycle. Uh, so if we look at Red Bull, for argument's sake, they have a very different approach to other teams up and down the grid, just purely because they have a, a massive advantage compared to their rivals. Uh, if we look further down the grid at, say, somebody like Alfa Romeo, uh, if we look at Australia, for argument's sake, they bought a new nose cone uh, and front wing, and so they're looking very differently to, to other teams. I would still argue that the low-hanging fruit uh, is the underfloor because that is the area in the regulations that offers the most bang for 
your book. Uh, and I still feel like teams are going to be able to find more and more performance there, uh, along with the floor edges, because of the way that the regulations have changed from this year to, to from last year to this. Uh, but as you mentioned, you know, there's lots of development going on elsewhere, uh, very track specific things, like you mentioned, beam wings. Uh, and then obviously, you, you'll notice if you've followed any of my other articles that there's lot, been a lot of development at the start of the season on the front wing end plates. And again, that is driven by the regulation change going into 2023. Okay, so one thing I want to get to, and one of the reasons why I asked this question is we saw a, a Mercedes and I think a Ferrari too, and an Alpine. Okay, so three. We saw several teams, um, and, and I know Mercedes in particular is the one I want to focus on here, say that, well, yes, we did a lot better at Australia, but we haven't really brought much in the way of development. So I'm thinking, what are they, how are they getting this extra lap time if they're not bringing developments, if there's not some, if there's not just some details they're tweaking now? Because it seems like to me, they sort of took a uh, dip your toe in the water approach to this season, like, well, we'll just sort of see, and then uh, maybe we'll get in deeper, or maybe we'll change course. So how are these teams making these gains if they're not bringing developments? Okay, well, I'll answer that in terms of both Ferrari and Mercedes, because obviously they're the ones that are closest in terms of chasing, aside from Aston Martin, obviously. Um, Those two teams in Australia, for argument's sake, Ferrari had nothing, no developments available for that particular race, whereas Mercedes had a small change to the edge of their floor, um, which is regarding the the way in which that you control the airflow uh, being pushed laterally off the floor. Now, in terms of what the teams are actually doing in this early stage of the season is they're kind of in a bit of a holding pattern. As you mentioned, obviously, they've kind of dipped their toe in the water. They've seen how the cars behaved at the pre-season test, and there's a latency in then them getting development onto the car. So most of the teams, you won't really see anything of sub- substance come until Baku. Um, and then we might be looking at, say, Imola, realistically, for, for something of a big package coming forward that might have the the sort of update that you would want for performance uh, of, of, you know, sort of a, f- a few tenths. Uh, what they've been adding realistically at the moment in these early phases is just corrective surgery in order to try to improve upon what they've already got rather than actually making big leaps forward. Um, and I think that's where we kind of stand in the early stages of the, the, the season under these new regulations because of the cost cap and because of where they stand in terms of the resource restrictions. The teams are always going to be a little bit more limited and they have to spread out that development over the course of an entire season. Now, if you think about what Red Bull have done in comparison, they've kind of flipped the script in many ways Um, and there was much talk about how much quicker they were in Jeddah especially with DRS uh, because of their straight line speed now they were the only team to have a unique rear wing available for that venue and, and a beam wing setup and so that kind of stands out to me as the massive difference between the rest of the teams because they brought forward a development that perhaps other teams will have to wait until say Baku for and that's when we'll see their lower down force rear wing and, uh, and offer them more efficiency so it's really about this trade-off between what the teams have found in pre-season testing whether they've come out the blocks quick um, and the car works as they expected and obviously how they plan to develop throughout the course of the uh, uh, through the course of the season 
in the opening races. Okay, well, if that's the case, then there's one more thing that I, I want to get to before we start discussing sort of specific teams. And and that would be the uh, comment that Lewis Hamilton made about his car and specifically about the cockpit positioning. And as usual, I have a multitude of queries to toss at you. But basically, they boil down to how is it that it bothers him and not Russell? How is it that he didn't notice it last year? And why is it that having been informed of this, Mercedes chose to go with that anyway? Because to my recollection, he was more or less told, well, yes, we understand you don't like it, but it makes the car faster enough that you should be able to live with it. Okay. So first of all, anybody who's listened to Tech Time for a while, I actually brought this up at the end of last season. Um, It was... Only briefly mentioned, but I did mention it on one of the podcasts uh, at the end of last season in regards to uh, my understanding of where their cockpit position was and would they make changes going into 2023. Now, I'm just going to read you uh, some extracts from the comments that Lewis Hamilton made. I don't know if people know, but we sit closer to the front wheels than all the other drivers. Our cockpit is too close to the front. When you're driving, you feel like you're on sitting on the front wheels, which is one of the worst feelings to feel when you're driving a car. I listened to the team, and that was the direction that they said they wish, that we should go. Had I known the feeling that I would have in it, I, would, I wouldn't have allowed this to happen. It has to change in the, in the future 100%. Now, the way that I'm going to explain this is if you imagine yourself sat on a rocking horse and you're sat behind the saddle, you're going to have a certain feeling when the rocking horse pitches backwards and forwards. If you're sat in the middle, in the optimum position on the saddle, you're not going to feel the forces so much going backwards and forwards. If you're sat in Lewis's ha- Lewis Hamilton's position and George Russell's position on the front of the saddle, you're going to have a very different feeling that feels very front end. And I think that's kind of the way that I'm going to sum that up in terms of how Lewis perhaps feels he's driving the car. He did also say in those comments, if you look at the past, I've always enjoyed an oversteering car. And now the biggest problem with the setup that he currently has is that the car is basically set up to understeer. And also we've got this problem with the Pirelli tyres having changed construction this year to try to reduce that understeer. So I think we're, you know, Mercedes are a bit caught in the middle in terms of the, their particular setup in that regard. And if you look at Red Bull, they're on the other end of the spectrum. If you look at the two, they have very contrasting positions in terms of their cockpit position. And it has a massive bearing, not only on how the driver perceives the loads front to rear because of the centre of gravity and the centre of pressure shift, but also on what you do with the packaging of components. Uh, And obviously that then breeds into development as well. Okay, so I do want to follow up here. I'm not going to be putting my cockpit and my driver, which is one of the heaviest things that I have some control over in terms of balancing the car. Because as we all know, ballast is a very useful thing to have. And essentially drivers, while they do perform some useful functions otherwise, are basically a huge sack of ballast. If you're a car designer, I'm only going to be sticking it that my driver that far forward If something, it seems like to me, has gone seriously wrong 
with my aero balance or or the rest of the balance of the car where I've put the components. So is this an assumption that's fair to make that they're struggling to generate enough front end that they feel like they have to stick all the weight up there to help it out? Yeah, I mean, it, it, as as always in Formula One, it becomes about trade-offs. So if we think about what uh, Red Bull's doing, for argument's sake, with their particular arrangements, uh, because they have their driver further back in the car, it means that they have to perhaps have a wider uh, fuel cell uh, to accommodate the the difference in, in length that they're, they're missing from having a, a forward cockpit. But it also means that they're able to take elements from out of the side pods, i.e. the electronics and uh, reservoirs, etc., that are he- normally housed within there, and they can put them underneath the chassis. Because if you think about where the driver would be sat, his butt is essentially further forward in the Mercedes, uh, further rearward in, in the Red Bull, and it just opens up that space underneath the chassis. Um, that obviously contributes to the Red Bull having this massive undercut that nobody else appears to have. Other teams are somewhere in between the the two distances that we're talking about with Mercedes and Red Bull. Uh, But it is a factor. um, And it's something, obviously, that you have to consider when you're designing the philosophy of the car. And it's not something that can be easily remedied aside from from a new chassis. And we're not going to see that throughout the course of a season that is cost cap restricted and also development restricted. So it is something that they will have to make changes around they'll have to work around those issues um and obviously in terms of aero balance which i think is probably where uh lewis is having the most issues and on the on the brakes for argument's sake um i think it will be a case of that the that the updates that will come will try to resolve some of those issues but it's not going to fundamentally change things okay and so in some ways then this is kind of similar to what we saw with max at the beginning of last season where the fundamental balance of the car just really didn't make him happy. But over the course of the season, Red Bull was able to bring developments um, to the extent their car design allowed to give him what he needed. Uh, So I guess if there's a final question is, do you have any concept, given the seating position, how much Mercedes will be able to give Lewis what he's seeking with simply uh, development over the course of a season versus with redesigning the entire chassis and moving the seating position? Well, I think it's clear to say that some of what they're going to do is regarding suspension because we've already seen the team mention that. So they're going to make some changes in that area. And it's interesting that Red Bull themselves have actually made changes this year uh, to their suspension layout at the front end. They've moved their front axle line forward. Um, So they've tried to uh, deal with the change in the Pirelli tyre construction um, because they've shifted the the axle line forward. They've extended the wheelbase of the car. Um, But that also has some interesting connotations when you think about the uh, aerodynamic wake that the front wheels develop um, and how that now will be different as it hits the underfloor and the side pods relative to the axle line being more rearwards. So there's lots of things that can be changed. The axle line position could be changed on the Mercedes technically. Um, whether that's a route that they will decide to take, I, I, I'm not really um, the, the right person to, to ask about that. We need Mike Elliott in the chat. Um, but I think... As I mentioned earlier, you can't fundamentally change the decisions they've made. The W14 is what it is, and you have to work around those issues. Um, a lot has been said 
about the zero pod solution. Uh, and obviously, I kind of call these ones the half a pod because they're not really zero pods anymore. Um, but fundamentally, I don't. I think that's a bit of a misnomer. It's a bit of a red herring. I still don't think it's the major contributing factor to the performance issues that Mercedes have had since 2022 and into 2023. It's more to do with the uh, this this issue that they have with uh, the way the car balances and also obviously the way that the floor performs um, over a wider range of working conditions. That's where um, I think that they're falling slightly behind and I think it's where they may struggle with this year's car and have to fundamentally change things moving into 2024. Yeah, well, it does seem that they have now acknowledged the fact that it's insufficient and not even insufficient, perhaps, as we see in Australia, to fight with Ferrari for second overall. But it's going to be insufficient to catch Red Bull, and therefore they're going to uh, they're going to uh, I guess go with a tabula rasa, fresh slate. Yeah, and and I think the other thing that you have to think about in this whole scenario is where Aston Martin fall in the mix as well, because obviously they, they've done a fantastic job with this year's car. Um, undoubtedly, I would suggest it's the second quickest car in the field, um, and we have to think about how much more they have in terms of the resource restrictions um, for CFD and wind tunnel this year because of where they finished in the Constructors' Championship last year. So up until the 30th of June this year, they're at full tilt uh, compared to the other teams. They have a huge amount of resource available to them. And I'm really interested to see what they have in the pipeline in terms of you know substantial upgrades uh, as we head towards that horizon because it could really put them in, in uh, the, the box seat for, for second place. Yeah, and I do want to take a moment because I think we have rightfully made severe fun of Aston for copying other people's homework beyond the level that one normally would in Formula One. But I do want to point out that to the best of my knowledge, this is an original Aston design. This is not them copying other teams. Um, Well, obviously, we've had the Xerox effect over the course of the last few years with uh, Aston Martin. They did <laughs> literally copy everybody's homework for a number of years. And there's nothing wrong with that in many ways because, you know, at the end of the day, they're, they're mid, they were a midfield team. They're looking to get up the rankings. If you can't do it yourself, you find somebody else's homework, copy their results and, and see how you get on and hope you don't get caught for it, which unfortunately they did with the breaks um, a couple of years back. And I think that was uh, obviously going to put the mockers on what they were doing in the future. However, this year's car, I'm not going to say it's not a copy because it's not the Red Bull. And I, and I don't know where that assertion from people comes from that it's a green ball. Yes, last year, the upgrade that they bought mid-season was essentially a copy of the Red Bull. However, this year's car is not. It is fundamentally an Aston Martin. It has taken influence from other teams, but every team does that. Now, the closest, I would actually say, it aligns to any team on the grid, certainly in terms of the side pods, or as I call them, slide pods, is the Alpine, because it has their side pod solution, only a much more aggressive version of it. Um, like I say, I'm really impressed with what Aston have done, but they have had a huge amount of resource at their disposal to be able to find these gains. And that's where, when we get the reset from the championship positions come the 1st of July, 
then they're going to be on an even keel with those around them. And that's where the, you know, the things will start to slide backwards in, in respect to resources. So let's see how they get on in the second half of the season and how that has an impact on next year's car as well. Okay, I love it. All you Alpine haters out there, I just want to point out, you've got one, rest, one less reason to hate them. Um, and Alpine... So I was interested, actually, um, and as I throw our entire game plan out of the window here, I was interested in the competitive balance in Australia. And, and I want to talk about this because to talk about Alpine, they had a brand new rear end, completely redesigned rear end. They had a very bizarre testing. And really, I mean, they've, they've shown that they have the potential for good results, but Reality has apparently gotten in their way a little bit between penalties and, well, you know, that unfortunate restart at the end there. But I'm curious, they showed really well here at Australia, just looking at lap times. Mercedes showed really here at Australia, looking at lap times. And the thing that I note is that because of the resurfacing, it was a very smooth and low degradation surface. Are we looking at I guess, uh, are we looking at there potentially some cars that will only do well on very smooth circuits and will struggle when it's bumpier due mainly to the ride height they need to run? Yeah, I think you've kind of nailed it there. Um, I also think that, and perhaps we'll get into this a little bit deeper later on in terms of the way in which that teams operate in the opening phase of the season can be very different to how they do in the middle to end of the season once they've kind of figured out where the tyres are in terms of their warm-up window, uh, in terms of how to maintain degradation and how to get the best from qualifying and the race. And I'll also add at this point that Pirelli are bringing tyres within the very end, soft end of the range to the next few races. So obviously that is going to have an impact on those other teams that have perhaps done well with the um, harder end of the spectrum in the opening few races of the season. So obviously Pirelli are a little bit more conservative as we come out the gates. They don't want to obviously create a situation that is just of their making. And so teams kind of um, have to be aware of the fact that things are going to change as as the season progresses and the Pirelli will become more of a factor. Um, having said that, um, I think it will be difficult for anybody to overwhelm Red Bull in just tyre management alone. But interestingly, I think there's a disparity between what Red Bull does in qualifying in terms of the distance between them and the rest of the field compared to what they do during the race. And I think that's indicative again of this tyre warm-up situation, uh, whereas they're better on the harder range of the tyres than they are on the soft range of the tyres. Okay, you've hooked me. Please explain that comment further, because as best I can tell, uh, Ferrari um, and or occasionally Mercedes seem to be closer in qualifying but nobody has the race performance on tires that Red Bull has. Yeah, correct. And I think there's a few things that go into that um, in terms of how the teams get to that particular window. I think if you've read any of my articles recently, you'll have noted that I've put a bit of focus on brakes this year and the way in which there's been some development from the teams and Brembo, but also in the way in which that they are using old tricks to teach these new, these, these dogs um, to keep the tires in, in that 
Goldilocks zone, if you want to call it that. Um, you know, you don't want to use up all your tire life quickly, uh, and you also don't want a, a tire that is going to go on forever, but you get, give you very little in terms of performance. And obviously, you want to find uh, that very good zone in the middle. And I think from a race perspective, uh, Red Bull have gone into the house. They've looked at all three of the bowls on the on the table and said, no, thanks, we'll use the microwave for our porridge um, because that's how we want to warm ours up uh, compared to what everybody else tends to be doing. Um, there's three teams in particular that I'd want to talk to talk about in terms of their, their uh, front calipers. Um, basically, they've gone along the, a similar line in terms of the design. Red Bull, Aston Martin and Williams have a very similar solution in terms of trying to reduce the, the weight of the caliper in order that they can make gains, obviously, from a weight perspective. Um, and in order to do that, they've taken an extreme amount of weight out the skeleton of the caliper but to, in order that they don't overheat the caliper, they've used uh, cooling fin tubes, uh, which make up some of that surface area and increase the volume effectively. So that's one aspect of how they manage those brake temperatures. But on top of that, if we look back at what teams used to do under the old regulations, rather than just use the brake ducts for uh, brake cooling, uh, they tried to transmit some of that heat into the, the bulk of the tyre via the wheel rim. Now, we have a sole supplier for wheel rims this year, uh, and indeed in 2022. So, you know, all of the teams are, are dealing with the same product, uh, which should make life easier for, for people to catch up to, to these tricks. Uh, last year, we had the brake fairings introduced that go over the brake disc, um, and that is partly what I'm mentioning about this heat transference. So if you imagine the the car braking in a straight line, you know, there's heat being generated into the caliper, into the pads and into the discs. Uh, you reject some of that heat out of the discs via the drilling holes. Uh, and then obviously uh, that has to go somewhere. So uh, some of that heat will be rejected out of the, the cooling outlets, but along the way, via these fairings and the way in which the brake drums are set up, you will transmit that heat into the wheel rim and via the wheel rim to the, the, the bulk temperature of the tyre. Now, if you've got a handle on this really well, you are going to improve your performance. You're going to change the way in which you, you heat up your tyres um, and you're also going to maintain that temperature over a long period of time to, to improve degradation. And I think that's the, the one of the big tricks uh, that teams are having to work with uh, over the course of this first part of the season. And then we'll start to see developments and, and certain teams will catch up in many respects. Okay, so if I'm understanding this correctly, essentially between the fairings and the radiator tubes, the teams that have pursued this solution are able to create what I'm imagining would be a fairly stable heater for their tires so that on long straights, they don't get as cold. But that, in turns, where lots of energy is put into the tire and the brakes, it keeps the tire bulk from overheating. And I guess maybe it's worth reminding people that the tire has got sidewalls, it's got bulk or carcass, and then it's got a tread laid over on top of it that might be multiple compounds both laterally and vertically. So the difference between a hard, soft, and medium can be multiple compounds spread across the tire. You might have a different shoulder compound than you do have the bit that runs straight along. But having a constant heat source and 
especially if I'm understanding what you're implying here, the ability to set it at different temperatures at different tracks via the amount of blanking that happens on the intakes for the brake ducts is essentially letting Red Bull and Williams, which might explain why suddenly they're doing a lot better, and Aston have a great deal better control over tire degradation and tire warm-up. Yeah, correct. And obviously the, the one thing to mention as well is how good the Aston Martin is on the brakes. It is by far the best on the grid. They've made massive changes this year to their setup because their caliper used to be housed in what we call the three o'clock position, i.e. it's at the front of the assembly. And this year they've switched to a more Red Bull style position for, for the brake caliper. Uh, and that then allows you to change the way in, all the, in which these fairings that surround the caliper the disc, and then obviously you have more brake drums inside the main brake drum. It's like a nesting, a Russian nesting doll with inside there. Uh, it's how you transmit these temperatures from one aspect to the other, how the, the cooling uh, can basically escape out the rear outlet. Um, and as you mentioned, obviously, that this has a bearing on the, the way in which the tyre performs over a short period of time and over the, the course of a race stint. Um, you, you know, the drivers have constantly got the temperatures on their dashboards for the tyres the because it is so critical to manage the, the, rate, the, in, the temperatures throughout the course of a, a stint. And it's why in Australia, obviously, we saw the qualifying session we did because the, the track's very green. Um, people are, are actually improving on old tyres just because they're putting the tyres through a heat cycle on a green track versus going in and taking a fresh set, which you would think would be the quicker route. So it's a very delicate situation. Um, and and tyres, as we know, has always been a controversial uh, aspect um, when we talk about the technical side of things. But I do think it is one of the factors that's in play in this early stage of the season. And it's where teams will look for performance as they open up into the middle of the season. I'm glad you opened the door to my first real ambush of this chat. Um, because we saw comments, uh, someone tweeted them at me, to be fair. I might not have seen them on my own, from Lando Norris, absolutely trashing the Pirelli tires and their performance and their lack of grip. And if I'm being honest, I'm thinking maybe he's mistaking his car's performance for Pirelli's performance, because I don't see Red Bull having a huge issue with that right now. Would I be wrong about that? Or does he have a legitimate gripe from your point of view? Obviously, all of the drivers would prefer a tyre that is going to give them maximum performance at all times. So it's always going to be an issue for every single driver because they just want to drive flat out all of the time and, and they don't want anything to get in the way of that. But then we also have to think about things like lift and coast, the amount of fuel they're using, F1 cars are rarely driven on the absolute limit. You know, that that's that's a fact, especially during a race stint. Um, in terms of is Lando's um, comments misplaced, I would probably think that given that he's driving a car that is basically last year's Singapore spec, if we're talking about where McLaren are in terms of development, then they're in a very different league to those around them. Unfortunately, McLaren are in a tricky situation because um, their car isn't where they'd like it to be. Um, they they appear to be wanting to bring a big update in the in the coming races, um, but it's almost as if they're sort of maybe 
half a season behind the ball uh, in terms of aero development. Uh, because as I mentioned, I was expecting a big change from them uh, when their car launched this year. And it was basically last year's Singapore spec. Uh, so that, yeah, they are, they are behind the scenes. Uh, they're a bit slow out of the traps. Um, but as we know, there's a lot of changes gone on there. We've lost Seidel and now James Key. And obviously that means a big shuffle up in the deck. And that means changes everywhere up and down their, their um, infrastructure. Yeah. And, and did we not hear that in essence, what has happened is they've, they missed their development target for the start of the season that like they made a discovery about two or three weeks late concluded they couldn't have it uh couldn't redo the what they had done in time for the start of the season so are are they not supposed to be bringing like almost a b spec car yeah, at I mean, some point in the not too distant future that's the kind of thing that i would expect to be honest and i expect quite a big performance leap forward when that happens because as i say the the car is very 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 similar to what we saw in their upgrade package for singapore last year um uh, and I, as I say, I expected a big leap forward uh, with the car when it launched. And I looked at the images and thought it was last year's car to start with because the, the changes were so minimal. So hopefully we will see them with a big package in the coming uh, weeks. Uh, I think in either Imola, Spain, around that sort of territory. Um, and then we'll see how they get on from there. But they've got a big way to vault back up the, the table. Well, if they bring in Imola, there's going to be yet another surprise for him. And I do want to talk about that in a minute. But but I also want to talk about something that everybody was talking about, which is triple DRS. DRS efficiencies are now on the tip of everyone's tongue. And I, I would like an explainer, like, what are they really talking? Like, how are they deriving this? What are they really talking about here? Well, I think the the term triple DRS is what you would term to be over-egging a situation. Uh, I don't see that there's a, a massive uh, silver bullet, let's say, in the use of the term uh, triple DRS, because unless you're actually talking about the effect of stalling the the rear wing, the beam wing, and the diffuser as triple DRS, then not, then not, then I can kind of live with that fact, uh, because you know that's what they're all doing to some certain extent. Um, but as I mentioned earlier in the show. The one big thing or big difference that we saw from Red Bull and why we saw them, you know, really just very, very quick in Jeddah is because they had a low downforce or low to medium downforce specific wing brought forward for that event. Whereas other teams uh, uh, were basically cutting the top flap. You know, they were taking drag off via the top flap. Now, that has a twofold effect. The cutting of the top flap reduces drag on the wing as you run without DRS. But it doesn't change the DRS offset very much. Whereas if you look at what Red Bull did, they introduced an entirely new design, which had a new top flat main plane and end plate design. So an entire new structure. They ran a single beam wing element and essentially their DRS delta was so much larger because of the new designed rear wing. So they were gaining all of that speed because they had something very specific for that particular venue that they will again use in Baku and maybe they'll trim their their, their, uh, top flap for that particular event um, should they see the need. Um, But triple DRS, I think is a bit of a, again, a bit of a red herring. I don't think it's it's not a silver bullet that anybody can just go, oh, that's what they're doing. Um, obviously, there's other tricks being 
employed by teams. When we think about the way in which other eras of Formula One we've had, um, you know, the diffuser stall, for argument's sake, uh, which it can be triggered a little bit easier, let's say, under these the guise of these regulations because you've got the beam wing in the middle of that aero structure. So if you turn off the rear wing, you're turning off the beam wing, you're turning off the diffuser, uh, the reduced downforce, um, how you set up your rear suspension so that it does what it wants to do um, at a certain speed threshold. Uh, we've talked about this in the past, Um in order that you can reduce downforce and, and drag. And I think there's lots of people talking about how that could be possibly implemented. Um, but obviously the, the teams don't have the tools suspension-wise that they used to have to perform those uh, scenarios. No, they don't. But uh, just out of curiosity, we've not given up on the idea of sort of aeroelasticity or flex is a possible explanation for where some teams might be more efficient at high speeds in a straight line than others. Yeah, I mean, obviously you've still got um, to pass the flex tests and the beam wing has one of those. Um, the diffuser is another topic as to whether that has a flex test and whether that is a possibility of creating similar effects. Uh, but the beam wing does have, uh, obviously, those tests. Now, Interestingly enough, in Australia, who was in who was the quickest in the middle sector, Matt, in terms of straight line speed, other than the the Red Bulls? Uh, was it the Alpines? The Williams. The Williams. Okay. Alex Albon, and guess what they had as their beam wing setup? Oh yeah, that'll be one element, just like the Red Bulls. So you know the 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 beam wing element because it talks aerodynamically speaking, to the, the, the rear wing element above it and the diffuser below can also be used as a, as a mechanism um, to improve the, the car balance, reduce drag, or imp- increase drag and add downforce if you're at a certain circuit. You know, we see Red Bull, for argument's sake, are going to use you know a double element in the likes of Hung- the Hungara ring or, or Monaco. They're not going to run a single element there, um, but it is something that, People should be aware of that. You know these these different specifications of rear wing, um, beam wing co- configurations can have a, a, a big effect on the, the performance of the car overall. Okay, so I, I'm thinking of I have so many things I want to talk about here, but beam wings we haven't talked about a lot. But my fundamental understanding of aerodynamics is that the faster you can extract air from under the car at the back, the larger the pressure differential between the top and bottom of the car, therefore the more downforce and more efficiency you get per unit of drag. And am I now wrong in thinking that the beam wing is incredibly valuable and important to this task of extracting air from the diffuser at a velocity that makes the whole car more efficient? Well, think of it as a as another flap above the diffuser. Uh, think of the gurneys that we used to see on the trailing edge of the old diffusers to increase their expansion ratio. Um, the the beam wing is mounted above that section, obviously, but it can work in a similar fashion. In its own right, it will produce uh, its own downforce, its own drag. But as I've said, 
it talks aerodynamically speaking to the surrounding components. And you have to remember that you've got the brake winglet stacks in that region as well. We've also got what all the teams are doing in terms of tricks with the diffuser um, and and the edges of the diffuser the, uh, in terms of you know how the it uh, produces its downforce and drag. And so, yeah, it, it's a, it's a very interesting element. They didn't remove it for no particular reason in 2014. That's all I've got to say. Um, it was removed from the regulations in 2014. It was reinstated with these regulations. Will we see the? Will we see them retract it if we have a, a rewrite of the regulations? Who knows? Um, but it certainly is a factor, and the way in which teams are using it to trim downforce and drag has certainly changed this year compared to last year because I think they've suddenly realised that they can use it as part of the whole scheme for those purposes. Yeah, well, the reason I ask this is that I read on the internet a lovely story about the original Audi TT, which had a high-speed instability problem until they put it in a wind tunnel and essentially the engineers added what was not a lot more than a gurney flap to the um, to the rear of the car on the trunk lid, at which point not only did the car have much more downforce and stability at a high speed, it actually had a lower overall drag ratio than it previously did. And that's because the what you like to call structures, and I like to call blowy things, we're connecting in a more efficient fashion at the back of the car. And uh, even going back, I remember learning for the first time that, oh, the air coming from the diffuser has to connect with the air coming over the top of the front wing, uh, the rear wing, or none of your aerodynamics will work at all. So it may be a thing that not a lot of people know, but the beam wing certainly seems like it's getting to be more and more important to the overall design of the cars. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't connect these airflow structures, you just get turbulence, and turbulence will effectively create drag. So if you can smooth out those transitionals with something in between, i.e. the beam wing uh, and other structures, you know, we, we see, we've seen that there's certain convergence within the field, and one of those is the way in which teams have moved the, co- the cooling outlets um, at the rear end of the car. Uh, they're desperate to... Uh, make it so that it's less impactful on the rest of the aerodynamic structures at the rear of the car because obviously you've got slow-moving heat rejection uh, in a critical zone. So if you can do that more efficiently, then you're going to improve the, the, the whole. You know, every car has to be better than the sum of its parts and uh, a bit like your your audi tt analogy you know if you you add one thing and it improves many others then it's worthwhile and that's why we often see teams using uh, what seems to be inefficient solutions i.e gurney flaps in very strange positions on on wings Um, and it's because it's not always about resolving a problem directly it's about resolving a problem indirectly yeah, in other words, in a long chain, that tiny detail will fix three or four or five other things and make the handshake even firmer. Exactly. Yeah, we, I've talked about the aerodynamic handshake on many occasions, and uh, and it's certainly a case. You know, if you can have all of your eggs lined up in your basket, then you don't uh, have too many problems. Then, and um, it, it's all about getting things to work in that chain more effectively. 
yeah. And this kind of weirdly brings us back to, I, I guess, Mercedes a little bit. And that, in just talking about this with other people, it just seems like with the zero or the 0 0.5 pod solution, they're requiring three or four or five fiddly things to all work correctly. Whereas with your basic Red Bull or Ferrari solution, or I guess we could say Alpine now, Alpine Astin solution, that it's only one or two things. And I was just curious if if you shared a similar viewpoint. In terms of the, the Mercedes zero pods, half pods. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, as you, as you say, is it too convoluted a solution, perhaps? Um, they obviously, the, the one thing that, that stands out to me is that uh, Mercedes clearly felt that there was still development scope within that uh, particular route to take it into this season, which suggests that they either had problems in their wind tunnel that were unresolved going into this season, which, again, is something that has been reported. Um, and they weren't, because they will have looked at these other solutions, they were looked at a more benign. I would consider the Red Bull solution more benign than it is aggressive. Um, yes, obviously, there's design cues on it that make it slightly more aggressive than other versions of it, like the Alpha Tari, for instance. The Alpha Tari has uh, had that solution since the start as well. Um, but Mercedes would have looked at these solutions in in CFD, et cetera, and decided that they don't feel that it's actually better than that, than what they currently have. So as I've mentioned earlier in the show, to me, the side pods are just a part of the jigsaw. It's not the only problem they have. Fundamentally, they have issues elsewhere around the car. One of those is primarily the floor, because we know this from last season with the porpoising and the bouncing, which obviously is exacerbated by the cockpit position for the driver at least compared to somebody who sat further back in the car um and i think you know that they've got to now accept the fact that they're going to move forward with something else um but have they resolved the issues internally with their modeling cfd wind tunnel uh that they they've reportedly had because they need to have resolved those to get the maximum out of the change that they're going to make. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
All right. One, do I understand it correctly? A large part of getting the air from the front to the back of the car is aided by the shapes of the side pod and the floor edge and the floor edge fences. So the less side pod you have, the more vulnerable you're going to be to things like wind and just the rant and yaw and stuff like that. More easily disrupted your airflow from front to back can be if you don't have structures you're using to help guide the air where you want it to go. Yeah, I mean, that's partly why they introduced those chassis blisters um, on the side of the the, the um, suspension area at the front of the car, which we now find on the, the Alfa Romeo as well. It's because they were trying to change the, the flow direction at the front of the car in order that they had uh, more improvement further downstream behind into the side pods and the underfloor, uh, which, as we know, the underfloor is the, the, the most critical aspect of the design under these new regulations you ace that, then you're you're, you're doing well, uh, which is where Red Bull currently sits. Um, and obviously, that again is ride height re- relative. Um, but yeah, I think fundamentally, Mercedes have have, have had to make a decision. Um, we can't get what we expected to get from this solution. Now we've got to turn tail uh, and look at something else. Yeah, and uh, before we go on, because you've just said something, and I have a question now about that. But before we go on for Mercedes, the other thing that I'd heard was that fundamentally they'd set their targets incorrectly because the floor edge and diffuser throat changes being raised solved the porpoising problem, but that they went ahead and solved it by changing ride height uh, for their concept. And now essentially they can't run the car low enough, whereas last season the problem seemed to be they can't run the car high enough. So that does speak then to what you suggested that there's a correlation problem somewhere in their modeling that's that's causing them grief that needs to be resolved yeah i mean it would be the first team to fall foul of this at the end of the day and and conceptually you have to think that mercedes have actually run on the very different uh treadmill to everybody else for the last over a decade because they've run a low rate car whereas everybody else has run a high-rate car. So their model is obviously set out very differently uh, to, to what everybody else is. Their expectations are set out very differently, and then suddenly you've got a change in regulation, um, and perhaps they've missed the eight ball in many respects. Um, but, yeah, I think that they, they, they've got to the point now where they've realised that they have to make a change, um, and unfortunately that might mean that they have to copy some of their rivals uh, in order to, to achieve their goals. Um, and I, to be perfectly honest, I would expect if they are going to make a change to the side pods that we'd see something more Aston related than we would Red Bull related or Ferrari related, just on the basis that they can see that that works uh, with their their power unit and wheelbase setup. Yeah, because doesn't Aston take more or less the entire rear end and gearbox from Mercedes? They do. They take the power unit. The, the gearbox, the entire rear end of the, the Aston Martin is, is essentially a Mercedes. Um, so, you know, they, they can see that that concept is working elsewhere. Take that and ex- extend upon it based around your set of circumstances. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be the same because of the discussion we've already had about the, the you know, the, the issues that they currently have. They're going to have to modify um the the Aston route and also on top of that there's still also the issue of the side impact protection spars those are critical in where you position things in terms of the radiators 
the side pods, etc. And obviously, every team on the grid has a very different position for those. And Mercedes certainly has a different position because they have that that fairing that is detached from the side pod, effectively. Yeah. So I want to go back to something you mentioned about the underfloor being very important. And one thing that I'm going to complain about here, and I'm curious if you have the same thing, is I've noticed that the marshals, when they recover cars, are being exceedingly careful not to show the floor to the TV cameras and the photographers. Now, you have more photographic info flowing to you than I do. But are, are you finding a similar thing? It's really hard to get a glimpse of what's going on there. Yeah, I think they've been warned, to be perfectly honest, um, that when they are putting the cars on the uh, the flatbed trucks, etc., that they uh, need to be conscious of the fact that they're going to show the underfloor to the entire world. And that teams don't want that. Uh, there were several occasions last year where we obviously had that situation unfold and we got very, very good pictures of the Red Bull, the Ferrari, um, uh, and some of the other competitors up and down the field, which would have irked the teams exceptionally. And you know what? How many cars did we have on a on a flatbed this race weekend? And I haven't got a single picture. So oh. that just goes to show. And you know how okay. many pictures I get. Yes, I do. And that's why I asked. I thought maybe there's some enterprising photographers that are doing a better job. But no, they're keeping the most important stuff hidden from us. And speaking of, since you were the maestro of regulations as well, am I wrong in thinking that there is no flex test for the floor? You'd be wrong. There, there is, is one. Th- there, is, there is flex tests in certain positions along the floor, yes. Okay. All right. Because the thing, one of the things that has struck me most about the last two seasons um, is that post uh, TD39, less for the porpoising and more for the plank construction. We saw a massive fall away from Ferrari and none whatsoever from Red Bull. And the only thing I can think of that explains that, and again, if they're meeting a flex test, then they're within the regulation. So please don't misunderstand my import here, Red Bull fans, is that they have discovered how to get the floor to bend in such a way They can run at ride heights, therefore more efficient downforce, that the other teams can't. And they can do so with a more compliant, I'm assuming rear end especially, um, to help them with uh, low and mid-speed corners. Yeah, I mean, all of the teams will be playing around with these scenarios. Nobody doesn't try to gain performance from flexion. It's why we see them using high-speed cameras in free practice sessions to check, say, front wing flexion. It's why we see the rakes around the car so that they can uh, do exactly the same and they will embed sensors within the floors. Um, All of the parts of the car can infer extra performance with flex if it's done in the right way. Uh, If you can do via defeating the deflection tests, then fair game. We, We saw that back with the, the front wing flex um, back in sort of 2009 to 2011. Uh, and there was a varied uh, route that teams took in order to gain performance in that respect. Is that a, a, an area of development I think is going on and, and not really being paid attention to? Um, not 
drastically, I don't think. I think there's, there, there is some margin for teams to be making performance there, uh, but I don't think it's something that's a massive story in terms of, oh, this team's doing something really, really clever to be able to flex that part of the floor to, to gain performance. Um, having said that, as I've mentioned, getting shots of the underfloor is incredibly difficult uh, under these new regulations. And as I've mentioned to you in the past, um, if and when I make my way into the paddock again uh, throughout the course of this season, I might take a mirror with me uh, to take a peek underneath the the cars when they're in the show and tell sessions. Uh, I'd wonder what the teams might say to that. Yeah, you need one of those mirrors that they have at the parking garages to check underneath your car when you uh, come in to make sure you're not carrying anything illicit under under the uh, under the frame there uh, can i ask then a- as we sort of uh, start to get to this a little bit i'm really fascinated right now by two teams that people will be surprised by but both alpha towery and alpha romeo are well you know they don't seem to be having the best of times and 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 surprisingly so relative to Williams. So I'm going to ask the question, is it Williams doing better or is it them just sort of either dropping the ball or being on a very extended, uh, we dipped our toe in and it's just going to take us time to catch up kind of a scenario? I think you have to look at it from a wide angle uh, to get a, a good view of it. And I would suggest that we remember that Williams have been at the bottom of the pile in terms of the resource restrictions for a long time now. So they have the most to gain for uh, the, you know, the least output in many ways, because they have so much more resource in terms of CFD and wind tunnel than any of their competitors, which allows them to obviously make performance gains on their, on their rivals. Um, Alfa Romeo are an interesting one in that regard because they started last season at the bottom end of the pack and got shuffled quite quickly in the mid-season reorder uh, because they'd made such a large gain. And obviously that's going to have an impact on how you structure your development because all of a sudden you've, you've had all the toys in the toy factory to play with, but then there's been a delivery and all of a sudden they've all gone out to all the toy shops and you've got none left to play with. And that's what happened in Ralph Romeo's regard. In terms of Alpha Tauri, I think they kind of made some mistakes um, in terms of their development. And Alpha Romeo and Alpha Tauri actually had the two biggest upgrade packages in Australia. Alpha Tauri had a new floor in pretty much its entirety. Uh, new floor strikes, new underfloor section in the front quarter, new edge section and a new diffuser um, throat section. So I do see that they might have fixed some of their issues with that particular upgrade, but it won't pay off until they make other changes to that aerodynamic handshake that we've already talked about um, in future races. And, and there's, you know, they, they've talked about that themselves. They've, they've basically unlocked level one and now they need to work their way up the the chain. And it's the same for Alfa Romeo. Interestingly, they went from a shorter nose, i.e. the nose stops um, short of the the main plane, to a longer nose. Whereas Red Bull and Ferrari had that last season and went in the opposite direction. So it just goes to show how teams have these opinions depending on where they are in the development stages, which is quicker when 
and for what particular purpose. So I, I think with all three of those teams, they're currently in a situation where you're going to see them perhaps move forward relative to the pack, i.e. They'll, they'll move closer to the front end of the pack. But it's at what development rate uh, we, we see that happen. Uh, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm still curious. I think that it's going back to our break discussion that when you told me that Williams has the same kind of breaks that Red Bull and Aston do, and therefore one assumes is a, a similar ish level of control over tire degradation and tire warm up. I just see that as being so vital. And, uh, and I will just bring us briefly back to the uh, restart in Australia where you had Verstappen behind Hamilton. This is after the um, lap seven, lap eight restart. And um, I went and looked at the lap times because everybody was so taken. Everybody was so taken with the um, pass, the DRS pass, like the difference in, in speed when Verstappen closed and passed Hamilton. And I remember even at the time looking at the lap times live and being, well, you know, Mercedes tires are cold. Verstappen's tires are hot. It's not a real surprise that he gets that level of traction advantage and would therefore have that kind of closing speed. And, but it made me go back and look. And sure enough, when I looked at lap times, uh, Verstappen was the first to get into the 22s. His pass on Hamilton was in the 21s, which I think also ate up his battery a bit. So it made it even more impressive. But um, uh, I think Sainz was second into the 22s and then Hamilton and Russell after that. So am I wrong in thinking that as we go forward, this ability to warm up the tires rapidly, especially if we're going to be seeing more red flags like this and more standing restarts, is, is going to be a critical performance differentiator that it might not have been so much in the past. Yeah, but I also find it interesting that Red Bull wants to be on the harder tyres, if you've noticed as well. So it obviously falls better in their operating range to be on a harder tyre. So uh, there's still some latent effects of having the right window for the particular tyre that you're on, because obviously the, the different compounds work differently depending on the tyre range, uh, the temperature range you're in. But yeah, I do th feel... Um, like I mentioned earlier in the show, that this is a major contrib contributor to performance in the opening stage of the season. It is something that other teams will have made note of and will be making their own uh, changes in regard to that particular um, design philosophy going forward. Um, but as you mentioned, that pass from Max Verstappen on Lewis Hamilton, I'd urge you to go back and watch the Perez pass on Oscar Piastri. It is even more impressive, given that Oscar Piastri had the DRS open and Perez went round the outside of him, um, closer to the corner than Hamilton and Verstappen's pass. Because Piastri was behind somebody else and was in a DRS train, yet Perez was able to overtake somebody that, was, that had DRS. Yeah, of course, that just means I want to mention Ocon's pass on Piastri too, but I will forbear. I will forbear for the moment. Um, and, and I I actually, you know what I want to ask you about, because I don't think we've talked about this really since um, since the start of the season, is, is the driver complaints about having a harder time following. And I know that they were the uh, front slot gap separators that can be set up in an outwash configuration. I know that Mercedes 
illegal, illegal connection of the front planes to the front wing end plate has passed muster. Are we getting into some dicey territory in terms of this regulation set? I mean, obviously, four DRS zones helps a lot, but are are we getting into a range where the FIA is going to have to come in and restrict some things, some more, to keep sort of the uh, entertainingly close racing that we've had, except for at the very, very sharp end, over the last two seasons? Well, I would argue that this situation was always going to happen because the Formula One teams have so much more at their disposal than the study that was done in order to create these regulations. So you're always going to get to a point whereby uh, the, the teams are creating more downforce uh, than than was in, originally intended from this regulation set. And we're well beyond that already, in my opinion. Uh, I, I think that there wasn't really the... Uh, expectation that teams would be able to generate as much downforce as they have. Um, obviously, when have they ever not generated <laughs> more downforce than was expected? This is my immediate question here. Exactly, and um, I, I think that the regulations did go particularly a long way to try to resolve the wake turbulence issue. However. Some of the changes that have been made for 2023 are retrograde in that respect. Because as you mentioned, the FIA weren't strong enough to deal with the situation with the outwash slot gap separators. They've effectively changed the regulations to allow them because they couldn't find a way to illegalise them um, from a wording point of view. Um the solution that Mercedes ran last season has reappeared and in fact is probably stronger than it was last year and other teams are running similar solutions to create outwash there. Um, and obviously we've got the situation where the floor is now in a different configuration to as the regulations were tested by the study uh, because we've obviously had to make changes to, to deal with the porpoising uh, and bouncing issues. And on top of that, there's changes to the floor edge which the teams are still pushing to find performance in and will throughout the course of this season. And the weight turbulence is only going to increase because of those factors. And the more downforce that the teams keep piling on, the worse that the weight turbulence is going to become and the more reliance we will have on DRS, unfortunately. But as I've mentioned before, there is other ways to deal with the deployment of DRS. It's just that the FIA have decided that they're going to continue to use it in a way that they always have done. It's not to say it's the right way, but there are ways to improve the racing with DRS, in my opinion, from a strategic point of view, um, if they want to obviously improve the overall racing. Uh, yeah, I think we're having multiple conversations on multiple fronts about this. Um, uh, before we go away from the outwash topic, though, I want to ask, because this is my personal understanding now, and I am not entirely an expert in this. But if I'm understanding why teams want to create outwash, it's essentially connected to the fact that the rotating unprotected wheels are a major source of drag. Therefore, any air that I can't force under the car to use as downforce, I would rather send wide off both the front and especially, again, when you're talking about the floor fences, 
the rear tire, the more air I send sideways away from those tires, the less drag those rotating wheels create. Therefore, the better for my overall car's efficiency. Is that kind of it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the worst case scenario is ingesting the ta- the turbulence that's being created ahead on, into the side of the floor because you're going to rob the the, the diffuser. Uh, of additional performance it's why we've talked about tire squirts in the past where basically the the rotation of the rear wheels and their deformation laterally pushes airflow into the diffuser now obviously the diffusers are much larger with the the current setup and the venturi tunnels um so that effect is lessened but if you think about airflow being pushed in laterally you're effectively reducing the the volume that the diffuser can operate at if you then push that away you're increasing the volume at which it becomes uh more potent so yeah the 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 teams want to create outwash they didn't do it for no reason under the guise of the old regulations and they'll do everything possible to regain it for this set of regulations which is what we're we're already seeing Uh, but obviously they are limited by the regulations in terms of what they can actually do. Now, the FIA have either got a look at rewording the regulations going forward to re-harness some of the conditions that we saw in 2022, or they've got to be accepting of the fact that there's a limit at which they can't step beyond and it becomes a problem. Now, I think we may have already passed the horizon in terms of dealing with the problem. And I think we might just end up in a situation where we end up with a complete redesign in, in a couple of years' time to try and re-combat the problem. Yeah, I mean, it is always sort of entertaining to watch the uh, FIA play whack-a-mole with teams being clever. But it seems like too many teams are being too clever too fast for them to keep all the way up. Um, and this brings me to your dig at the FIA never wanting to try new things. And I'm going to connect it to your earlier comment about big update packages showing up at Imla. Because I'll be honest, if I was in charge of a team, based on what I know now, it is the last place I would bring any kind of an update because we're going to see a change to qualifying and tire use at Imla. And to make it more fun, they're bringing the absolute softest tires they can. Yes. I mean... Don't get me wrong, I'm not digging at the FIA. I'm suggesting that there are other ways to do things. And unfortunately, historically, they've always been late in reacting to situations and making changes that might be better for the sport. Now, as you say, Imola is probably not the best place to introduce an upgrade because of the changing circumstances. However, if you are a McLaren of this world and you're already exceptionally off the pace compared to where you want to be, then surely you would add an upgrade or an update, as I prefer to call them, uh, because sometimes an upgrade, an update is not an upgrade <laughs> <laughs> if it fails miserably. Um, you, you, you know, you got, just get it on the car as quickly as you can. It's why I fail to see why Ferrari do things the way they do on occasions, because they'll bring one part, they'll have both drivers test it in free, free practice sessions to, to get their feedback, and then they won't race that part. Uh, even though it's quicker, they won't say, oh, this driver can have that part, whereas other teams will naturally side with one driver and apply an upgrade, an update ahead of schedule if they don't have multiple versions of that part. So going back to uh, 
the factor of bringing upgrades or updates, I would put it on the car as quickly as I possibly could. However, Spain is usually where we would see updates. However, it is later in the calendar this year because, again, we have a longer calendar than, you know, we we really need. Um, And so, you know, everything has to shuffle down the development pack and then that's impacted by the cost cap, the resource restrictions. So there's a multitude of reasons why we're starting to see teams bring things at certain races rather than the traditional spot in Spain. And Imola obviously being a European race means there's less transporting costs and less in terms of having the part ready to ship it out or, or air, air freight it or put it on the on the uh, the boat uh, as they, they would have to do. You've got a shorter lead time between getting it from the base in Europe to a European race. Yeah, no, I get that. I was mostly making a joke about the fact that we'll have a brand new qualifying procedure in Imola. And because someone asked me about it on the internet, I've actually gone and looked at it. So what is your opinion? And I'll, I will just describe in brief for people before you give me an answer. Essentially, instead of having free tire choice in qualifying, you're going to be required to make your runs in the first qualifying session on the hard tire. You're going to be required, and I looked, believe me, because I saw it as a loophole immediately, to make your runs in the second qualifying on the medium tire. And in the third qualifying session, should you be fortunate enough to be there, you will be required to make both of your runs on the soft tire. And what I think a lot of the outlets have missed about this is due to the fact that you have two less tire sets to begin with, teams will be able to essentially take a single set of fresh tires to the start of the race unless they get knocked out in the first or second qualifying session. And that's quite different to what they're used to. Very much so, yeah. And it's it's obviously going to have an impact on on strategy. Um, look, I, I'm I'm hope I'm hopeful that changes or certain changes to formats can become effective. You know, I'm not a massive fan of the sprint. Uh, unfortunately, we're stuck with the, the sprint. It's not going away. We've actually got more this season. Uh, but from a qualifying perspective, I do think there are merits in looking at the way in which the, the, the format is run in order to improve the way in which the lower end teams are able to make it through the various qualifying stages. And one of those routes is to change the perspective of the teams in terms of uh, the tyres the that they're operating on, which, as you mentioned, uh, the hard tyre, the medium tyre, the, the soft tyre, depending on which qualifying session you're in. Um and as I've already mentioned earlier on, there are teams that are better with certain tyres than others in terms of both warm-up and performance. And so that will probably bear out uh, in, in terms of qualifying. We could actually see it hinder the likes of Red Bull. As I mentioned, they are slightly uh, worse off in terms of the, their soft tyre running, um, but not to the point where I don't think they'll qualify on pole position. Uh, but yeah, an interesting way of, of changing things up. Let's see if it works. Yeah, well, uh, here's what I like about it, is that if the worse you do, the more fresh tires you have for the race. And with this formula, even with the outwash being more of an issue than it was last season, it's clear that qualifying and, and position at most tracks really doesn't matter as much. So teams that are on the bubble with fresher tires 
could maybe do some interesting things, which we almost saw in Australia if it weren't for all those red flags. Like I, I just like I'm, I'm devastated to see that Russell's and Ocon's and Sainz's strategy just got flattened by those red flags. Yeah, I mean that that's always an an unfortunate situation, isn't it? Where you're, you're the race is is almost decided upon uh, by external factors. Um, to be perfectly honest, I had to watch the race back because I was in a bit of a fever dream where I don't think I actually caught most of the race because of the the early timing of it, uh, and obviously working some of the hours that that you do around the the events. But I wouldn't know anything about that would, over here. No, you wouldn't know anything about that, Matt. <laughs> so I would imagine that most of the the races look very similar to to that for you uh, as they did for me. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a. Um... It, it's a very late night, early morning thing, those uh, the Pacific races for us here in the U.S. Uh, now, uh, hmm. there are two teams that are, I think, kind of intriguing that have not gotten a whole bunch of mention. One of them is Haas, and the other is Alpine. Now, Alpine, I, I think I've sort of already set up, and I waited this long just so people wouldn't accuse me of being like overly enthusiastic about them. But they intrigue me because I see a progression in their performance in lap times and relative to the other cars that seems fairly large and I think could be put down to a lot of simply beginning to understand the new design for their rear end. Haas is also intriguing because I have never seen them able to manage their tires, at least since they joined the sport as well as they have in Australia. So are are these kind of like some sleeper teams to be paying attention to, or, or was this really kind of more of a one-off, very circuit-specific performance for those two? Yeah, I mean, you always have to take uh, Albert Park as a bit of an outlier because it is in many respects, uh, especially with that four-zone four DRS. Um, you know, that, that, that very yeah. much puts it out on the outside of the what we normally see. Again, I think tyre relationship is very critical here. As you mentioned with Haas, they they were good uh, in Australia. Perhaps they can learn from that experience. Uh, They also were very much uh, up there in terms of the DRS offset uh, relative to the rest of the field. I think they were the second highest uh, in the speed traps uh, with with DRS deployed, and they were actually very efficient uh, in a straight line as well. Uh, but that's obviously just down to the way that they're running their car and then obviously they're sacrificing things because they don't have the downforce that others do. Um, Alpine, again, flattered to deceive in in many respects, haven't they, throughout the course of this season. I was really interested to see how they'd get on given the the development that they had uh, throughout the course of 2022 where they basically had an update at pretty much every single race, um, came into this season with a whole new rear end, um, as you mentioned, that they've switched um, their their rear suspension setup. Uh, they've added some, or they've changed around their rear cooling uh, around the power unit, and that's obviously freed up some additional space elsewhere. So it was, I was really keen to see how they'd get on. But we do have to remember that I have a new t- a new driver amongst all of this as well, who's having to learn all of the protocols that go with racing with another team. Uh, so. I do see that they'll make progress. It's just that perhaps they haven't made the progress that they expected to make. Uh, but then when you've got somebody like Aston Martin who've leaped as far as they have, 
it all becomes a bit of a mess behind because, you know, they were the team that, you know, there was McLaren, Aston, Alpine, similar scenarios depending on circuit specificity last season. And now all of a sudden Aston aren't around there. They're, they're much further forward. So, you know, the, I, I think we'll see a, a better result for them going forward. Um, and once they've started to understand the car a little better and how to get the best from the tyres. Yeah, well, it was intriguing to me watching Gasly keeping up with the Ferraris, granted in DRS. But what was even more intriguing to me is watching Alcon, once he was ahead of Piastri and out of Perez DRS, setting very similar lap times to Gasly. I mean, Alpine were really kind of very close to being on pace with both Ferrari and Mercedes at Albert Park. And in fact, I mean, if you consider him essentially demoted to 15th place because of the red flag, he was already, he was back in the points and chasing and and chasing Norris, not, I don't think catching him, but chasing Norris for ninth place, which is, that's, that's a pretty remarkable thing for a midfield car to be able to do. Yeah, like I say, there's there's plenty of potential there. It's just trying to unlock that performance uh, and getting the best out of it over the course of both qualifying and the race. All right, so I think, you know, we're we're kind of getting into the, we're going to have to wrap this up, despite the fact we could probably keep on going for another metric hour or two. Um, I did want to ask two more questions, though. The first is we've just seen some information from everybody's favorite automotor sport that the failure for Hulkenberg was an MGUK. Are we back to Ferrari's power unit not being as reliable as they swore it would be when we all thought they were going to win this year's championship? Well, again, it could be another outlier, couldn't it? It could just be a failure. Uh, it could have been down to running in certain modes. It could be down to debris. Um there's a whole host of reasons as to why uh, we've had a failure on the MGUK. Uh, it is difficult to swallow that Ferrari have made another back, uh, step backwards, if if they indeed have with their power unit, um, because it will not only have an impact on Ferrari themselves as a works team, but also their suppliers, which obviously it has in Hass's case this this time around. Uh, two MGUKs, if I remember rightly, for the season. Um, yeah. So, you know, that puts Hulkenberg in a position where he's going to end up taking a penalty um, at some point because he's not going to use just a solo MGUK. Um, although having said that, it could be something that could be repaired. Uh, there's no... I don't believe there's any notification so far that it's something that failed that can't be repaired. So it might go back into the the allocation if it can be repaired once it gets back to Ferrari. Uh, We'll have to wait and find out on that one. Yeah, and then the last question, and this is the one that I've sort of tagged in my notes, is the silver lining question. As we have talked extensively about how much better Red Bull has done with this regulation set than anyone else. And it's not arguable. They have the best car. But having the best car and having it be dominant in the way that it appears so far are kind of two different things. So I'm going to ask you now, we've heard drive shaft, gearbox, shifting problems. Is this Red Bull 
fragile enough for it not to be as dominant as they appear right now in the early part of the season? Or is this just window dressing from Milton Keynes to make us all feel better about the only entertainment we're going to have is if Perez manages to get ahead of Verstappen, who for some reason had a five grid spot penalty, maybe for a new gearbox, you never know. And then the question is, will Max catch him or not before Perez wins the race? Um, I think that if you look at the winningest cars in Formula One's history, there's two cars that really stand out at the top. You've got the MP44, won 18 of its 19 races, and the W05 uh, of Mercedes won, I think it was 16 of 18 races. And of those to have won the most, the the McLaren was down to an issue uh, of a failure and so was Mercedes. And I think that will be the situation with Red Bull. Uh, I don't know if they're going to make the full 100%. Um, circumstances might dictate at a certain point in the season that they might take enough penalties to put them out of the picture anyway uh, if they have to start taking power unit components. Um I'm not sure that the drive shaft issue is as big as perhaps it looked uh, in Jeddah. And if you recall on many occasions last season, Max talked about misshifts uh, with his gearbox as well. So again, I think that might be more down to the fact that um, this is an in- inherent way in which that um, Max relays information to the team. And I don't see them having major issues in in as much as that they're going to win the, the title at Takanta, unfortunately. Um, but that's just the way it is. They, they, they have done a very, very, very good job. I will caveat that with they also received a penalty for doing that very, very good job because they did it by breaking one of the regulations. So now they are suffering the consequences of that because they have less resource at their disposal. But was the penalty enough to match the crime? Because, you know, I'm, I'm still not convinced that uh, it will be enough to overwhelm their development uh, in comparison to the rest of the field. And this is always the problem when you, you know, you change things by regulation um, in, in trying to reorder uh, a situation that has arisen from... Uh, somebody being outside the scope of the regulations. So it's an interesting one. We'll see how the rest of the teams catch up. But for me, I just see Red Bull having a, a very good run into the end of the season. Well, on that note of utter gloom, I think we have sort of come to the end of our discussion here. But before we go, where can we look for you on social media and on the internet? Okay, so obviously on Twitter, uh, probably be unverified very shortly in in uh, on that platform. But as it stands, I still hold my blue tick, um, which is Summers F1. And obviously you can find my stuff over on uh, Autosport and Motorsport uh, in terms of uh, the, the technical content that we put out there. Go read them all. You will learn many useful and fun things. And as for me, I'm at MattPT55 on the Twitters, at least until Twitter goes down in a heap of flames. And until next time, this has been Missed Apex Podcast. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.